This is On Boys Parenting Podcast. We are your co-hosts, Jennifer L.W. Fink, mom of four boys. And I'm Janet Allison, teacher of many more. Thanks for joining us as we share real talk about parenting, teaching, and reaching tomorrow's men. Hello, dear listeners. This is going to be a longer introduction than you usually hear Jen and I give you for our guests. But this guest today is very special. And, you know, the world was so very different back in the mid-90s when I was struggling to teach and understand my class full of boys. There was no internet back then. There were no Facebook groups to lament and talk with. My only lifeline then was books. And believe it or not, there weren't that many parenting books. And books just about boys, even fewer. There were only a few people talking about boys back then. And our guest today was one of them. And I really think that he went out on a limb to stand up for boys and men in a time when culturally the focus was really on empowering girls and women. He's an author, a psychologist, and an activist, and he has written many books. They've given us a new language to talk about boys and men and fatherhood. It's been said that he is the world's best known parenting author. And it was interesting to me too that he was a pioneer in writing parenting books that were actually easy to read and had a, had a really digestible format. So we all thank you for that. Among his books, all of which are now classics and have sold millions, maybe billions by now, and they've been translated into over 30 languages, are The Secret of Happy Children, which has been in print continuously for 34 years. He also wrote Manhood, which was widely acclaimed for creating a change in how men saw themselves and prompting many men to reconcile with estranged fathers. And the book that was so profoundly moved me towards my 20 years of working in the field, which has been called the most popular book ever written about raising boys. In 1997, the edition was called Raising Boys, Why Boys Are Different and How to Help Them Become Happy and Well-Balanced Men. And now this classic has been updated and renamed Raising Boys in the 21st Century, How to Help Our Boys Become Open-Hearted, Kind, and Strong Men. And I am so honored and so delighted to introduce our listeners to you, Steve Biddulph. Thank you so much for being here. Hello, Janet, and hello to everybody listening to the podcast. It's great to talk to you. So wonderful to have you here from Tasmania, right? That's right. Way down the bottom of the world where we have a (laughs) bit of peace and time to think about things. (laughs) The world has changed exponentially since you first wrote Raising Boys. What have been your biggest takeaways, your biggest surprises as you've worked on this new edition of the book? I think the biggest change, Janet, has been this amazing shift in fathers. And it was a thing, lads of today, 
are um, spending about three times as much time with their children as the dads of yesterday, of, of the older generation. And so we've seen a revolution in fatherhood. And that's good for little girls because they need their dads. And it's really good for boys because they're getting to see their fathers in a deeper way and can learn what a good man looks like and map that into their own masculinity as they grow up. Mm-hmm. I work with a lot of parents and I, I still see a lot of dads who struggle because they're kind of at this crossroads generation of they didn't really have a great role model perhaps in how to be that emotionally resilient dad and and they've got wives who are expecting them to be more emotionally responsive and they're trying so hard. I see them striving and wanting to be that great dad. Yes, that's one of the things that we try and get across to men is that um, it, it's there's no no wonder that it's hard because we try to be good dads when we've never even seen what one looks like. Right. And, and the 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 post World War Two generation of of dads. Um, they were the most underfathered generation in history. Um, the dads were often either absent or they were so damaged that they didn't really come across. They were like a shadowy figure in the family mm-hmm. who occasionally exploded with moods or violence, but a lot of the time was just really shut down. And so what I say to dads today is don't feel bad if you have a sense of pioneering something new. Um, it's, that's how it is with parenthood. It's a lot of stumbles. And um, the idea that men were often raised with was that we're somehow supposed to magically know what to do. And we have to get it right. Um, that Men don't make mistakes and men are always damn sure of themselves. And so being human, in a, you know, if a, a dad who can say to his kids, you know, look, I'm sorry, I, I was really stressed in the traffic and I, you know, I was swearing and yelling and I'm, I apologize for that. I must have scared you when I shouted so loud at that other driver, you know, <laughs> and the kids hear their dad apologize. They think, wow, you know, or if a, a, a dad is, um, tells his children, he's, you know, his mum's been taken to hospital and he's really sad because he's, 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 you know, their grandma is pretty old and she might not live much longer. A little boy looks up at his dad and thinks he's so strong and tough even dad gets sad, you know, that's amazing. And so even our um, vulnerabilities are good for our children. And if men know that, I think they'll relax into the role of fatherhood and it'll just go a whole lot better. Yes. Having that permission to be, to be real. And, and it's the challenge too, of expressing emotions that, it's hard to find the words to put to them. That's right. And of course, these are some of the things that we know about the psychology of boys. As you said at, at the start of the interview, we, we didn't really know what was going on. And, but it's, the science has been so helpful because we know that boys' brains develop much more slowly in the language areas. And so they don't express feelings or they don't use words as well as girls do. If you know about that and you're a mum of a, listening to this, you've got a little baby boy, if, if, if you chatter to him and you talk to him and you read stories when he's a toddler, then you'll help him to be the kind of man 
that the 21st century needs where he can talk you know he can express himself and so it's the thing of we're not saying that the genders should be so different but they start from a different place and and if you know that we i i, I joke around with my audiences i say we don't need men who can wrestle buffaloes anymore <laughs> you know? people people need men who can talk talk to their wives talk to their children be a good work work colleague and so on mm -hmm. and so um we know we want to design the kind of man that is going to be happy in the world and comfortable in his own skin. Yes. And you can set off in that direction with your little baby boy, hold him up close and tickle him and make eye contact and switch him on to the world of people. Then he'll be fine. He'll, he'll still be rough and tough and brave, but he'll be able to be tender and close as well. And that's what we really want. What else did you discover as you recrafted this book that's such a classic for the 21st century? I'm imagining a lot of things stayed the same, but what really struck you in differences? Yes, there are three or four really important things that, are, that we've learned. And the first one that I always like to stress is that just because you know you've got a boy doesn't tell you anything about him as an individual because gender is a very continuous thing. And there are um, very boyish girls and very girlish boys. And, and so we treat gender as being something that's on a, a long continuum. And you, your job as a parent is to find out what you've got and work with the child that you have. And, and so we, we've made this fantastic progress of not putting kids in boxes based on their gender. Right. Now, Yes, and I'm, I'm glad you see it the same way, Janet. And given that, there are still some, some really strong generalizations that, that work most of the time. And for instance, um, when baby boys are born, if they take a blood sample from, their, um, from the umbilical cord, the cord blood, and they look at the levels of testosterone in that blood, they've discovered that there are high testosterone boys and low testosterone boys. Even in the womb, they're different. Mm -hmm. Now, that means that some, some boys will be very much more rambunctious as they're going through boyhood, and others will be, be quiet and sensitive. But a, an astonishing finding was that we've always known that boys have a lot of trouble with reading compared to girls, that, that um, about three times as many boys have reading problems than girls somebody was incredibly smart and they, they correlated that with the, with the blood testosterone levels at birth. And they found that almost all reading problem boys were high T boys. Really? Yes. I haven't heard this. This, no, is... this, this sort of accounts for the, the, the difference. And so what that means is that we, and people say, oh, well, should we go and have our, our blood tests of our boys? And I say, no, don't do that. <laughs> Just... Just make sure that you chatter a lot. As we said earlier, that if you work on the sociability of that little boy to, counter, but to counterbalance that. So it's saying there are risk factors in being a boy. Now, in case people are listening of any doubt of that, um, boys are three times more likely to die than girls before the age of 25. And so that's a massive, um, it's like a whole other country. And, and these are from accidents and also self-inflicted. Yes, the, the, there are th three many causes, motor vehicle accidents, suicide, and um, 
and violence is the third one. And they're not, luckily, they're not everyday things, but everyone listening will know of a boy who died in a car crash in their school or their community. Everyone will know a boy who took his own life. And they're, they're completely preventable. All three of those, um, Janet, should never happen. And, and so we have to say, you know, what's going on with the boys? Now, the, the other finding, coming back to your question, the other finding that was really important was that there are some age, vulnerable ages, and one of those is four. And at, at the age of at the age of four, I was four, going to ask you about the age of four. That testosterone <laughs> spike at that age, which well, you found what, more information about. Yes, what what um, there was a lot of um, controversy about this, but we always were hearing from parents something happens at four; they go off the deep end. Yes, and and it turns out that what it is is it's there's a, a hormone called luteinizing hormone. It 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 comes up very strongly at four and it starts laying down some some cells in the testes of little boys called Leydig cells which are the beginnings of their becoming masculine kind of like the very very early first things of puberty mm. um, you're even laying down the foundations of that even you know your little boys and we don't know how this links to behavior but it's very, very clear that there's a physiological change at four. And then what parents uh, and teachers all um, testify to is they, they get very active. They're not, they're not naughty. It's not bad. But if we have a setting where the, we want them to sit still and, and in schooling, you know, to, to kind of force them to be in formal learning when their whole body is calling out, use me and move me and be active because that's how brain development works best. If you move your muscles around, that's how you become smarter at that age. And so I think we had a, I think we've probably saved millions of boys from terrible times because of this message saying they're not bad. Right. That's what boys need to do. And plenty of girls do as well. Mm -hmm. um, Kids should run about. We're a, we're a species that ran about a lot in our prehistory, mm -hmm. and it's just just cruel, just cruel to make kids sit still. Yes. And so, we, and you know, we're big mammals. If you have a big dog in a New York apartment, you know you've got to get it down to Central Park and run it around. <laughs> uh, it's the yes. same with your boys. And <laughs> is it the same in um, in Tasmania and Australia of the? lack of movement in school and the s small amount of time for recess? I, I think we still have a decent amount of recess, but we have the same problem you do in that we're starting the kids too young into formal schooling. Mm -hmm. um, advanced, one of the things to realize, and I know this is shocking to the American sensibility, and but it's the same with England, it's the same with here in Australia. We're not advanced countries. Advanced countries are places like Finland and Sweden and Germany. They don't start serious sit-down schooling till the kids are seven years old. They have loads of running about. I can see you nodding your head. Oh, as yes, I'm, I'm and, very much on board with that, Steve. Yeah. Um, yeah. But if, but if, if you're a, um, a primary school teacher, elementary school teacher um, who knows boys and who loves boys, you find ways to get them running around. Um, I had a friend who was an elementary school teacher. 
she taught math outside every day. They went out into the yard and they did math measuring the trees and measuring the, the, the benches. And um, her kids thought math was an outdoor subject. <laughs> <laughs> That's so great. We need yeah. more like that. And I think that, you know, female teachers aren't, we don't learn. I, I did not learn in my elementary education degree. No one talked about boys are going to learn differently than girls most many boys need that active math. And so we have so many female teachers who don't understand what boys need. And so they're getting sent out in the hall. They're getting sent to the principal's office and, and they're in school too young anyway, as you said. Yeah. And so it's like this perfect storm of the adults not understanding the boys, the boys being at a complete mismatch with the requirements, the expectations of that classroom. And yeah. it's a mess. That's right. And I think I, when I first wrote Raising Boys, which was 24 years ago now, um, we put out this message. We said, when your son is thinking, when you're thinking of starting school, the calendar is a terrible guide to school readiness because kids are different. And if in your heart you feel like your little boy is, is too young to be in school, um, listen to your heart. And, and we've had, I would guess, hundreds of thousands of parents who read that in the book. And I never, I never in my books, I'm not an expert in the way people put that. I just say, so here's something to think about. Mm -hmm. um, your heart will tell you if it's right or wrong, but hundreds of thousands of mums and dads, I thought that's what I was feeling as well. He's too, and so they, so they kept them back. Uh, they kept them in, in play school, kept them in kindergarten, and they, and the, their boy waited till the next year to go into school. Now those kids now are lawyers and doctors because I meet them. They come to my talks with their children. Oh, I love it. And yeah, and so it, and I've never ever had anyone. You know, I've, I've had people come up to the street in London or in in Frankfurt and places that recognize me, come over, and they say, "We did that thing that you said in your book. We waited another year," and and I've never ever had someone say it didn't work out. Right. Say, he was, you know, he. He went fine in school. He was one of the kind of, you know, kids that, that was, he was ready when he went. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you don't do it for advantage. Uh, it's not to, to, to do with a competitive thing. It's just that your kid is, is comfortable in school. Yes. That he feels capable to be there. Yeah. I want to switch topics a little bit today. And this actually just came up today in my Facebook group. A mom had written in about her seven-year-old son getting in trouble at school, not a surprise, uh, for roughhousing during recess, also not a surprise. But at their school, they practice restorative justice. And part of that system is doing a self-reflection. So the teacher was helping the boy self-reflect on what had happened. And she, I'm going to read this because I want to get it right. So the, the parent was talking to the teacher that had done this reflection with him. And she said, the teacher said that the boy asked if he should feel ashamed of himself. 
And the teacher told him, yes, because that means his heart is working. And I wanted to ask you about shame and boys. And it's, it's such a, a deep hidden wound that our boys seem to have. And how do we help them navigate that feeling? And how do we not shame our boys who seem so sensitive to it? Yes, I think some one of the aspects of, of male psychology is that shame is, is a very toxic feeling. Um, there's a lot of writing and work that's going on with this now. And Brene Brown and some of those other people have written about this and, and a book called The Spirit Level, which talks about why so many men end up in prison. And the idea that we can easily feel ashamed just for being male and that it's a, such a horrible feeling to a boy that if you want to kind of provoke violence or, or terrible actions in boys, that shaming them is a, can be the, one of the ways to do that. Now, I think those teachers were really trying to do the right thing. And I think restorative justice approaches are wonderful because instead of just sending someone to detention, you sit down and talk it through. But you have to really work from how the kid feels. You know, the, the, probably the best answer to that would have been, well, how do you feel about it? And he might have said, well, I'm a, I feel sad that I, you know, I, I, I scared my friend or I did the wrong thing. Um, and you say, well, that, let's, you know, well, at least you're, um, you're fixing it up. So you're great. You're doing great wanting to fix it up. Um, piling on more shame is um, not the way to go. Um, but but it's very easy to make these calls, Janet, when we're sitting back, you know, with a leisure. And and um, <laughs> yes, I know that. Yeah, know. and there are other things that this brings me to the the other new research that came through, uh, which was the what's called the emotional eights, and um, the emotional eights. Eights. That's right. In the new book, we we only just got this. It just happened when we were finishing off the manuscript of the book, and it was the. Um, the University of Melbourne here in Australia had studied a cohort of about 2,000 boys and they found that there was a, a developmental stage which nobody knew about. Um, we have some very large-scale studies where they follow large populations of Australian children. And the stage, the name given to this stage is the adrenage, which is a little bit like menarch in girls. Mm -hmm. Adrenage happens at around the age of eight and it's the it's again it's in the next building block to puberty, which then comes later at about in boys about thirteen. And what happens with adrenage? The adrenal hormones start to kind of um, crank up, if you like. And the way it's experienced is that boys feel more emotionally labile or more just more easily upset. And so they'll feel teary about something, or they'll get angry or anxious. And as, as a mum or a dad, what you'll notice is that's unusual for him. He's usually pretty bouncy. You know, he doesn't really um, get upset by things, but just lately he's been upset. And what we wrote, wrote in the book is what you do with that is very similar to what you might do with a with a 11, 12-year-old girl and say, look, you know, you're, you're starting to turn into a woman. There's a lot of hormones flowing around. 
Um, sometimes you're just going to be really ratty for no reason. You know, you'll, you'll shout at your best friend or, um, or you'll feel like you want to, you know, slam doors or things. Maybe there's a reason for that, but maybe your hormones are cranking that up. And, and that's exactly what we would say to boys at this age is, is a kind of a don't worry. It's totally normal. It means you're starting to grow into a man. But while that change is happening, sometimes your emotions will be three times stronger than they need to be. Here's some strategies. You know, if you feel like you're going to punch somebody, just go walk away for a few minutes. If you feel a bit teary about something or upset, come and talk to me. There's still real feelings, but they just, uh, they might sort of knock you a little bit around just how strong they are. Mm. Um, now, no one had ever heard of this before. The, the blood samples and the, it was very clear evidence. And so it's wonderful what we keep finding out. For mums and dads, we just think, oh, what's, you know, what's gone wrong? You know? What and, the hell? <laughs> yes. And, and it's an enormous relief to know, you know but with, with the full on fours, people were just so relieved. Mm -hmm. I, I get letters from people saying, you know, we're, we're so glad that we thought we were terrible parents because we live in a 19 story apartment building. And our boy was going, climbing the walls a little bit. And we thought we were bad parents because he wouldn't sit and read a book all day. And so it's, it's just great to, to know we're, we're natural, healthy creatures. We just have to make allowance for that. Yes. And science is backing that up. So that's, that is great discoveries. I wonder, you know, as we look at this new generation, so many things have come forward the Me Too movement. We've got hashtag future is female and a very strong rise in empowering women. And boys are getting a lot of mixed messages and are confused about what their role is. And especially if they're starting to show interest in girls that they're worried that they'll be blamed for something. So the whole consent and respect and me too, it's a, it's a big knot. Can you help us untie it a little bit? Yes. Well, first, first of all, uh, are you looking at me with that look like, you know, how about this one? And <laughs> of course, of course, this is important to, to address. And the first thing to say is this, these are good movements. It's, it's really, really important that the Me Too movement has has got out there, not just for celebrity women, but for the for you know for seventeen year old girls working in McDonald's who have a a, a creepy boss, and, and 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 women working in in orchards and and farms, and and those incredibly vulnerable positions, and so it's really good that men are being asked, and even boys are being asked to look at where, what they're doing. And so with our, with our sons, and I think the real hazard, and this is what, again, we wrote huge new sections on this in the book, it's that pornography is making it much worse. Yeah. And, and so most boys have seen porn by the age of eight, and probably half of them are watching it regularly by 14. And what we, parents feel, myself included, very... Um, thrown by what to say and what to do about this. Um, and so we got some guidelines from some terrific um, people who, who were focusing specifically on this. The main thing is to sit down with our boys 
and to, and to let them know that we know about porn, you know, and and say, look, you know, you're bound, you'll be at school, you know, even in elementary school, there'll be some kid will show you some picture or something about sex, and um, that that's around. Um, don't worry, but if it's icky and you don't like it, let let me know if that happens. But so that at least they don't think there's this secret world that we're not supposed to hear about. Mm -hmm. um, the second thing is to when they're getting into you know, 11 or 12 is to talk very specifically about the messages of porn because what we're having happen here in Australia is teenage girls are showing up in doctor surgeries with their mums um, with horror stories about what boys have done to them and sometimes even with with injuries from what boys have done now the boys are, are getting from pornography their sex education Yes. And, and that's a terrible thing. And so what we put in the book is there are five or six myths that porn teaches. And so you say to your boy, porn isn't real. Real lovemaking is really nice. Um, it's, it's everyone enjoys it. It's, it's sensitive. It's you go carefully. Um, you're finding your way, finding what's right for you and what's right for your partner. But the, the feeling of it is really, really nice. So if you're watching pornography and there's people calling each other names, they're hurting each other, that's not what lovemaking is really like. And it doesn't, um, it doesn't work and girls won't like it and they won't like you. Mm -hmm. and, and so um, generally people don't like to be called names. They don't like to be hit. They, they talk a lot, they giggle and smile and they go slowly with making lovemaking go well. And so pornography is completely artificial and there's a list of, of six ways that it differs from the real thing. Um, and they're all about respect and timing and communication. Um, and so if you talk to your kids and tell them, you know, this is different and this is different and this is different, when you, when you see porn, um, that's not what it's really like then that that gives them a chance to sort of separate from those those messages and not make those mistakes mm -hmm. um because and I, I get really upset about this janet because young love is one of the nicest oh, things in life isn't you it know? yes yeah, yeah. You know, holding hands for six <laughs> months you know and just makes you feel so good and 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 kissing you know in nobody kisses in pornography there's a generation of of girls now saying you know we, we i've had sex with those boys but they never kiss you um it just it's all about get her done and um they're and missing the best part exactly exactly and 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 so by i think it's a bit embarrassing to talk about this stuff don't feel bad and don't shame your boy for being interested you know because of course you know you, you you're attracted to to people and you want to see what they look like and people are beautiful um that's okay to feel that way um but just he, these are the these are the the dangers and these are the other pitfalls um we need to know yeah and it's an ongoing conversation it starts mm. when they're young and it has to be ongoing because it's going to be a lot easier to talk to an eight-year-old, nine-year-old about age appropriately these topics than to sit down with your 14-year-old. Yes. They never it's, talked about it before. 
<laughs> That's Everything right. for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Start start early when when you before you're too embarrassed. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And if, and if, I must say that I have we have a Facebook community as as well on on I've got a boys one and a girls one, and a lot of the mums of of boys would want me to say this is that um, girls will also mess boys around a fair bit around sex. Yes. Does that make sense to you, Janet? Absolutely. Yes, they can be quite aggressive and have unrealistic expectations of boys. Yes, because the the power the power of their sexuality is something that girls, um, even I think you know, five hundred years ago, uh, reveled in their sudden interest to boys. And and that again, that's that's fine, um, but it, but it, girls can use sex as as a, a weapon against boys, and can use, even just use it insensitively towards them. Mm-hmm. And this this doesn't excuse boys mistreating girls, but um, the, the mums keep saying to me, you know, when I'm hard on when I'm tough on the boys, the mums will come back at me and say, well, you ought to see how the girls treat them. And so again, if you've got a son, you can say to him, look, some girls will send confusing messages to you. Um, they're just learning how to be with their sexuality as well. Yes. Um, don't, you know, but, but just be a little bit careful of getting, you know, what, what she really means by the way she's behaving. Um, we're all human and everyone, you know, makes mistakes. These are, these are kind of big guns that we carry around with our, with our attractiveness. Yes. Um, and, and you'll, and it's, it's, it's always, been a timeless area of of stuff ups and 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 miscommunication absolutely and now it can be just way more out there with social media and texting and all of all of that so it is really even more fraught with danger and uh opportunities for embarrassment yes yes and, and and just don't have the internet in bedrooms. Uh, you know, let's be practical. We we shouldn't. Kids shouldn't have uh, internet-enabled devices in private spaces in their in in their lives because because it's a it, it's it's a, a bad world out there. And and um, us parents have got to show a bit of backbone. Um, put everyone put their devices on on the charger in the kitchen at tea time don't go near them till the next morning and you'll avoid a huge amount of pain <laughs> right well that that's a good segue into my next my next dilemma for you steve there's a mom who and and i hear from many moms that they have now they have the location device on their children's phone so they can look at their and see where their kids are. And so this is a mom of a 15-year-old boy who is, uh, the family has gone through a really rough divorce and the boy is in very much rebellion, not listening to mom. Pretty much her only leverage is being able to turn off the data on his phone but she can track him. She knows, you know, he's up north, he's in the east part of town, he's in the west part of town, or he can turn his location off and she can't know where he is. And I mean, I'm just curious what your thoughts are about this technology and how we manage our 
relationships with our children, given that we have so much more power or ability to know where they are and what they're doing. And for her, it was a little bit like, you know, you have to look at why you're doing this. Of course, she's worried about her son and his safety and how much stress it causes her just having that ability to check in, check in with her kid away at college and know that, oh, he hasn't left his dorm room today. What's wrong? Yeah. <laughs> I it's crazy. Yes. I mean, I think these are a, a new layer on something which is timeless and that's to do with trust and, and whether we have trust and whether we feel that there's a, a good relationship there. Now, people listening to, to the podcast who are um, mums, perhaps especially single mums of, of teenage boys, what we always say to be really clear is women can raise boys on their own very successfully. Women have done that for thousands of years. And the, but it's, it's a delicate thing because he's wanting to be a man and he's wanting to be his own man. And that's healthy. In an ideal world, he would have uncles and grandfathers hovering around him on his case, um, teaching him and guiding him. Um, all of the single mums that I ever worked with were really keen to get good men into their sons' lives to help with that, but it's not always available by any means. And so what it means is that we have to sit down with our sons at that age and say, you and I have got to get along. We're going to be in each other's lives for quite a while still. And I, I've got to work at being what you need in a mother. And you've got to work at being what I need in a son that I can care responsibly for. And so what do you need me to change that will make it easier for you? And can I tell you what I need you to change for me to do my job? Mm. And we're going to get cross with each other. We're going to make mistakes but we need to keep talking and, and to come from a vulnerable place, come from the heart and say, you know, I get really scared. I don't know when to call the police, you know, when you come in late. Mm -hmm. um, and so to be able to let you go out till midnight, I, I need to know that you'll call me at 11 and check that you're okay. How does that sound? Mums have a lot of leverage. They feed and they clothe and they provide this enormous um, life support. Um, which they don't have to do, you know. And I worked with tough families where the deal was mum would call the police. If, if that son broke something or threw something, she would call the police. And once he knew that, you know, she was saying, you know, I can't manage a, a big hulking boy in my house unless I know I'm safe. Mm -hmm. um, so that boy had to learn fast. And, and I don't know if it's the same in America, but it helps if you know your local policeman and they'll come in and they won't go overboard. Um, but coming sometimes, you know, someone who comes and talks to that boy, family friend, church minister, someone that boy respects um, comes in and says, look, you know, you have to treat your mum better than this as, as ways to, to get through. Luckily, what we know is 14 is the peak. Boys are having trouble with their own, you know, their testosterone is now 800% higher than it's ever been. It goes down after that. <laughs> if you can hang in a couple of years, they get much more human. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't last forever, but um, I really feel for 
mums in that situation because it's like we've made them the they're the point man they're the only one who's who's really looking out for that boy and that shouldn't be the case right right it really shouldn't yeah yeah I wanted to also highlight because I was of course reading deeply into your biography and you have some other amazing things that you do, Steve. And I was so interested in hearing about your humanitarian work with refugees, your work with climate change. Can you tell us a little bit about those other things that you do in your beautiful and rich life? <laughs> well, sure. I, I, I think it, I can, exp- the best way I can explain it is if you, if you really love your children, then you love all children. And, um, and I remember holding a, a little baby boy, my son's 36 now, but the year he was born was the year of the Ethiopian famine. And I was sitting with him on my knee, this little newborn little boy, and I saw a dad in Ethiopia with his little boy oh. looking pretty skinny and hungry. And, and the sense of connection, I would never have felt as until I became a dad. And, and so there are some serious evils in the world and one is our failure in your country and in mine, just as bad in the treatment of, of people fleeing for their lives. Yes. Um, so, so for five years we worked on that project um, and I'm lucky I sell millions of books and so I could fund projects to, to address that. And, but, but more recently and welcome this opportunity is that climate change now, there's no point in raising healthy children if they're going to die in a shelled out building in 10 years time because of climate change. And I think we were mistaken about, we had the wrong image. We had polar bears as our image for climate change. Now that that touches your heart to see a polar bear starving, but it's not us. Um, Mm -hmm. And the face, the real face of climate change is famine and war. And agriculture is the first thing that goes in our countries, in prosperous countries, agriculture falls over, we have food shortages, we're rich, so we buy other people's food from Russia or, or Canada, or wherever. We face a very warlike world with not, not millions, but billions of refugees. And kids are very worried about this. They learn it in school. We teach, this is the most informed education, most informed generation ever. And we can't fix this as a mental health problem. We actually have to fix the problem. Mm-hmm. And that means rapid escalation around climate. And yes. so what I'm doing in this country is to, we want to shut down the coal industry because coal now is, is poison for the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and every parent that, I'm, that I see and talk to, I say, you want your child to live long and happy. You want to see grandchildren. You want them to be able to have grandchildren. Mm-hmm. Give a day a week of, of your life to whatever in your local town or city that has, is going to fight for climate justice. And, and that's our job now. Mm-hmm. Um, it, in, in, in the 1940, it, your job was to go and fight Nazis um, or fight fascism. Um, that's what dads did to look after their families. Thank God we don't have to do that. We don't have to kill anybody to defend our children. But we have to be that level of commitment. Yes. Um, if they're going to be able to have a, a living, breathing world, we've got to give a day a week to making sure that happens. 
and it's a happy thing. It's a happy campaign. You meet excellent people. <laughs> well, and we are recording this the week after the climate strike. Yes. And all over the world. And Greta, of course, leading the way, bless her heart. And yes. people are becoming more aware and active. And I just want to, want to appreciate all of your efforts in that arena as well. Oh, thank you. I mean, what it feels like is is helpless floundering, Janet. But but I think someone said, even if you're just asking the question, what what should I do? You're you're well on the track. Yes, yes. yes. And helpless floundering—that's what we do as parents raising our kids, right? <laughs> that, can the, that can be the theme of our of our interview. <laughs> we flounder on. <laughs> Oh, Steve, this has been so enjoyable. You have taught me a few new things today, which has been wonderful to hear. And I'm curious if you have, you know, if you had the ear of every parent in the world, what would you, what would you say to them? What would be your okay. words of wisdom? I know that's yeah. a big, big if question. I could, if I could write something on the sky... Here, this is completely uh, from a different direction, Janet, would be hurry is the enemy of love. Oh. And that when we, when we rush our lives, love goes out the window. And so slow mm. down, slow your life down, and then every, every connection will be real and nourishing and your family will go well. I can see that touches you. Looking I, at you yes, it does. That's so beautiful. Thank you so, so much for all the work you've been doing for all of these years. And may you have many, many more years to come because we need your wisdom and your, your wise words in this world on all fronts. Beautiful to talk to you. Thanks so much. Thank you. It's impossible to raise boys alone. Join one or both of our Facebook groups. Jen is at Building Boys and Janet has Boys Alive. Ask questions, share your wins, get support when you need it. We'd love to have you join us. We are Jennifer L.W. Fink and Janet Allison, and we are here to support you in parenting and teaching tomorrow's men.